Want to bet? Yep. Then get into the action at Sports Interaction. Whatever your sport, Sports Interaction has you covered. Bet pregame, in-game, or on one of the many unique prop bets. Head to sportsinteraction.com slash SDBN. Or in Ontario, download the app now using our QR code at the bottom of the screen. 19 plus, please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm here with Adam Wild. How are you, Adam? I'm good, Alan. I'm excited for today's show. How about yourself? I'm doing great. It's been uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we did an episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the All Star break, and uh, I made a quick sojourn into Tampa for the opening night of the Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band tour. <laughs> What a shocker that was. I'm, I'm blown away. What's that show, 5,766 for you? Or how many is it now? Uh, it's, it's like into the 140s. Is it? Yeah, it's into the 140s. Uh, over the course of a lifetime. My first show was uh, 1978 at the Montreal Forum. Um, it was pretty cool being down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the band came in uh, three, four days before opening night. Uh, they set up the stage early. The Lightning were on the road. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. the Lightning were were on uh, bye week, f- heading into All Star break. Okay. So uh, there was nothing going on hockey wise. So the stage was all set up, and uh, the band was going in and rehearsing every day in the afternoon for four or five hours. Um, uh, I stayed across the street at one of the hotels across the street from the arena. Mm-hmm. And literally 90% of the people in the hotel were people who had flown in from all over the U.S. and the world uh, to see the show. Um, so my wife and I are in an elevator uh, at the hotel, and there's a young couple in there with us from Italy who huh. couldn't speak a word of English going uh uh, Springsteen? Springsteen? <laughs> I'm like, uh, CZ. And they're like, ah, yeah. and he's got a Bruce shirt on, and they're all excited. Um, it was it was amazing. People were telling me on their flights into Tampa that it was literally all Springsteen fans wearing Springsteen shirts, um, you know, Springsteen Street Band shirts, and uh, it, it had a real um, – Super Bowl event kind of atmosphere around opening night. I love that. There's a it, – it's sort of like what, what um, you know, Grateful Dead fans used to do, deadheads. They just follow the band around, and I think that Springsteen's got that as well. It's like, you know, most people just wait for him to come to your city, right, to your local city. But uh, Springsteen fans like yourself, you're there for opening night. You're probably there for closing night. And, and it's funny, you know, these guys are – in their 70s. And how long was the show, this initial show? Opening night was uh, about two hours and 45 minutes. And by the time they're mid-tour, what do you think it'll be? Um, I'm expecting it'll expand to about 3.15 to 3.5. That is an obscenely long time to be playing. Like I mean, you could tell if yeah. you're a longtime fan that they hadn't played together live in almost seven years. Mm. And um, there were, the, you know, the lighting was off on certain songs a bit, and they were tentative uh, in, in certain places. If you, if you know what to look for, right, right, 
But that made it all the more endearing that, um, you know, they weren't, you know, super confident out, uh, up there and they were looking at each other about who was going to step into, you know, which fill and, and, and do a riff or a solo or, or do something. And there was a lot of gestures with their heads and, and eyes looking at each other and, you know, pointing a little bit here and there. Um, but overall it was an amazing show. It was an emotional show mm-hmm. uh, when they finally came out and they were all there together on the stage, you know, for, for the longtime fans, it'd been, almost seven years to see them live playing together and uh, to, to be at, at the first show where mm-hmm. they're going to play, you know, over, over 90 shows on this tour uh, was a, was a remarkable experience. You know, people ask me about you sometimes, Alan, they're like, what's he really like? And I think the word I always use for you is passionate. When you, <laughs> when you feel something, you feel it with your chest, Right. When you love someone, you love them from here and and the way you love that band and the effect that they've had. I mean, honestly, I feel like if you're ever done with being an agent, you could probably teach a university course on, you know, on that that band and, and their effect on popular culture and um, just the, the encyclopedic knowledge that you have. Um, it's cool because what, what to me, you know, I've always admired Bruce Springsteen, think he's great, but I don't know if I've ever met a fan who loves him quite like you do. And I think it's generated more interest in myself to go, you know, maybe I need to go back and listen to those records again and, and, and try to hear what Alan's hearing. You know what I mean? And I've never seen him live either. So I'm looking at those tickets in Toronto going, should probably go to that. You should. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, obviously, um, you're down in Tampa, you saw the show, uh, saw, you know, you saw the all-star game festivities, good or bad. Um, uh, I also, I, I guess, you know, one of the things that we want to do today on the show is sort of discuss the news that sort of started to break over All-Star in a little bit into last week. It still hasn't been announced as of the recording of this podcast uh, officially, but this is a major event in the business of the NHL. This is going to affect every player, and it's going to affect league head office, and it's the appointment of, finally, a new head of the NHLPA, and that is Marty Walsh, currently U.S. Labor Secretary. Yes. Now, that is a very, first off, that's quite the title to hold. Um, secondly, there's a lot of things around this that um, that haven't come come out yet. But I think where we wanted to take this show and, and where I want to take this show is a lot of people hear about the NHLPA in bits and pieces. You know, the NHLPA is an organization that, Obviously, we know what the purpose is, but as fans, you sort of only get headlines, right? You get the NHLPA is saying this to defend this player or the NHLPA and, you know, Don Fear and Gary Bettman sat at a game together. Um, You don't really get the full sense of what the NHLPA is and what it needs to do. And I think what what I want to take this is I want to put together a list of here are the things the NHLPA needs to do with Marty Walsh at the head or at least in the words of Alan Walsh. Um, no relation, by the way, right? No relation. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. so you know, Alan and I, full disclosure, talked a little bit about this uh, last night just to kind of get ready for this one. And the NHLPA getting new leadership, Alan, the direction 
that they need to take. The first thing that came to your mind uh, when I brought it up to you is engaging their membership and their membership are players. What do you mean by engaging the membership? Because any union is going to be engaged, you would think, with its laborers. No? Anybody um, connected to the business of hockey, um, especially on the player side, it's no secret. It's not telling uh, stories out of school. Uh, There is a tremendous amount of apathy on the player side. I would even go so far as to call it a disconnect between the membership and the top leadership of the NHL PA right now. And this has gone on for several years. Now there's some very well-meaning, well-intentioned, hard-working people at the NHL PA, but uh, the, the biggest issue to me uh, that I've observed firsthand is, you know, when, when Don Fear came to the NHLPA in 2010, he did an amazing job getting the players educated in a very short window of time uh, for the 2012 CBA negotiation. And for the first time, really open the inner workings of the union and setting of policy open to the membership. And uh, there was a big meeting in Toronto. Hundreds of players showed up. Wow. Mm -hmm. Hadn't seen that in a while. And one of the very significant things that Don did that had never been done before is he said, any player, who wants to come to a CBA negotiation meeting with the league is welcome to come. So there were some CBA meetings where there were people on the league side, whether it was Gary, Bill Daly, a group of owners. Um, on the PA side, uh, PA leadership from Don and the other people in leadership um, to 30 players. 40 players, as many players as wanted to come at any time, raise your hand, say you'd like to be there. Here are the details. There was a briefing before the meeting where the players were told, okay, here's the subject of what is going to be discussed today. And here's, you know, the league's position up till now. Here's our position up to now. And we're going to go in. So the players had a real interest in what was being said in the meeting. They knew what was um, the issues on both sides, what to expect. And it, it brought the players in It engaged them. They were engaged. Unfortunately, the very nature of a professional sports union versus a union in any other walk of life, um, the, Average NHL career is less than five years. Mm -hmm. And so many of the membership who went through the 12-13 lockout were no longer in the NHL by 2014-15. So what needs to happen is there needs to be an aggressive, sustained um, um, 
policy on the PA side of meeting regularly with the players, especially the young players coming into the league and educating them on the history of the PA, educating them on what has gone on in the different collective bargaining agreements, Mm -hmm. um, the gains that were made or lost at the negotiating table and, and getting them activated, getting them interested, hearing what's important to them, the issues that are important to them and, and incorporating their activism into the PA operations. That didn't happen. So as we went through, you know, 2016, 2017, the general feeling amongst the membership was, I don't get what the PA value is. I don't Hmm. get what the PA is doing for me because they were disconnected. And then as some of the older veteran guys started, um, uh, retiring from the league. Now you lost the leadership, mm-hmm. right? Because from 2012 13, there's just a handful of guys right now in the, still in the league, just a handful. Yeah. And, and there, the, the, the players who've come into the league since, I can't tell you how many times. I've sat with the players who don't know how we came to get a salary cap in 0405. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with players who don't know about the original effort to create an NHLPA led by Ted Lindsay and Doug Harvey in 1956, 57, and how the owners crushed it and how it took 10 years from that seminal event to actually have the creation of the NHLPA. I can't tell you how many players have no idea about the NHLPA through the Eagleson years and the Eagleson, Wirtz, Campbell, and then Eagleson, Wirtz, John Ziegler, um, triumvirate of, of, leadership of hockey, you know, all the way through to 1991 and the ascendancy of Bob Goodnow to the NHLPA and how that changed everything. And, And if you're playing in the league today, there really is no means for you to learn any of this Unless the PA is actively teaching it, you know, we, and, and, and it's on, it's, it's on the agents. It's on the agents, mm-hmm. right. To, to do what you can in educating the players you represent, but really it's on the PA and there just hasn't been that effort done I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. And it takes more than one meeting to explain all of this. 
and uh, it it takes it, it it takes players understanding how important it is for for them to understand the history before they can make decisions about their place in the league today, what issues are most important to them that are subjects of collective bargaining and being able to decide what their positions are and be heard. Because if you're looking at it all through a vacuum, Mm -hmm. if you're looking at it all through a vacuum, without any understanding of the history, I don't know how your opinions, as well-intentioned as they are, are informed. And they need to be informed and well-intentioned. If you were to give me a general consensus, Alan, of what the average player would say about the PA right now, if you could put it in a, a couple sentences from, you know, you have a ton of clients and you also talk to players that are not your clients. So I don't want to just, you know, that's just the way the NHL works. Everybody talks to everybody. It's a small community. Yep. Um, if you could put it in two sentences, what do you think the average NHL or paraphrasing would say? Um, disappointment. Um, lack of uh, lack of relevancy in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. Um a lack of, uh, you, you know, if you don't engage with players, um, the players feel that lack of engagement. And so many times I've had players say to me, I just don't see the value of, of, of what they're doing right now. Because, and, and, and again, I'm not slighting anybody. I'm just making a comment on what I see with my own eyes. The people working at the PA are incredibly dedicated. They're very hardworking. They are doing their best. But ultimately, the leader, the leader must be the one leading the engagement with the players. And no doubt the pandemic created silos and isolation and made it very hard to go around and see players directly and talk to them like you would expect. But in fairness, this is not something that was new to the pandemic. This is something that has been steadily in uh, successive decline since around 2014, 2015, as more and more players left the league who were engaged and active and educated in 2012, 13, there was more and more of a disconnect with, with the players and their union. You know, I, I sit there and I think about it and, and I think a lot of people listening to this would be like, okay, so, you know, these are NHL players. They've got coaches that are actively involved. They got families that are actively involved. They got agents that are actively involved. How do you find the time in there for a players union? Number one. And number two, you know, Alan, you've got experience getting players attention, <laughs> you know, and getting league attention too. What, what would be the, like, what's the boots on the ground approach here? Like, what is the, 
is it is it going going around and meeting with each team? Is it creating a a, a twenty minute history documentary, like a quick history of the NHLPA to to hand out to people? How do you what what would you start with? Um, I I I think there has to be a a, a, a basic understanding of of where the PA is going, and that means engaging with the membership. So talking now in specifics, I believe mm-hmm. any leader of the PA needs to go into a city and pick any city, Chicago. You've got to go in there and you've got to meet with four or five players over dinner as the new leader or leadership group. And you have to engage with them. Let's talk about history. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about you and your families. Let's talk about where you're at in your career. What do you think are the key issues of the day? Let's talk about the cap and how it works and how it could be tweaked or changed. Let's talk about player safety. Let's talk about, you know, your concerns about life after hockey and what the PA can be doing to help you more. Let's talk about group licensing and how the PA can leverage and monetize the group licensing rights to generate more revenue on the player side. Let's do all of that, right? And that's only with four guys. So it's not somebody coming in and addressing 23 guys, Mm -hmm. right? Like a university class with a professor. We're talking about a tight, small group with three or four guys. And then you're not going anywhere because the next day you're going to meet three or four guys for breakfast. And then you're going to meet another group of guys for lunch. And now you've met four, eight, 12 guys. And then you're going to go out for dinner the next night and you're going to take four guys and now you're up to 16 guys, right? So now, now you've gotten to meet everybody and, and hey, anybody want to meet one-on-one? Happy to meet you guys while I'm in town. So it's not a one-day trip in and turning around and leaving. It's a three-day trip, mm-hmm. right? Where you're spending three days in a city and you're going to meet with the vast majority of the entire, if not everybody, right? And and now players are going to say, hey, I, I broke bread with this guy, you know, for two, two and a half hours over dinner, over breakfast, over lunch. Um, I met him for beers and we sat and we talked, you know, a group of four or five guys. And it's like, I, I got to know him. I mm-hmm. like him. I like him. Right. He's talking my language. He listened to me. And and in every in every meeting in this small group, you need to challenge players. Hmm. You know, players are okay being challenged. Hey, you guys are complaining about apathy. You guys are complaining about the PA not being relevant to you. We're going to come up with ways for you to get involved. And that's going to start with you getting on calls when Mm -hmm. we have calls. 
It's going to start with you serving on a committee. It's going to start with you coming to the summer meetings, right? So there's going to be a big showing in the summer when the PA has their big summer general annual meeting. And it's not going to be 30 guys or 25 guys. It's going to be 150 guys, 200 mm -hmm. guys who are going to show up and, and, and be part of all of the activities and learning and discuss, discussing. And so you leave Chicago and you go to Detroit and you do it all over again, right? Cause we've got the, the players have four years before the collective bargaining expires mm -hmm. really more like three and a half now. Okay. That's valuable, valuable time where, you know, maybe the first 12 months is going to be creating a new engagement between a, a new invigorated PA leadership led by Marty Walsh and his group mm -hmm. and the players. And until you do that, you do nothing. You have nothing. And I'll tell you why. Michael Weiner, and I don't know if anybody out there knows who Michael Weiner is. Mm -hmm. um, he was one of the most brilliant sports labor leaders in the history of professional sports. Um, he was a Harvard educated lawyer who spent uh, literally his entire professional career at the MLB PA. And when Don Fear retired from the MLB PA, Michael Weiner took over. And mm. in fact, the last CBA negotiated by the MLB PA, while Don was still the leader of the MLB PA, Michael was the primary negotiator. Michael was loved by the people inside the union, and he was beloved by the players. Hmm. He was respected. He was super intelligent, and he probably would have gone down in history as one of the iconic leaders of the sports labor movement in North America. And unfortunately, um, at a very young age, um, in, his, in his early 40s, uh, while leading the baseball union, um, Michael had brain, terminal brain cancer and, and passed away. And uh, it created a, a huge void in baseball. Ultimately, Tony Clark, uh, who was working with Michael at the time, came in and took over. But Michael, it, it, you know, sometimes I've, I've sat back and reread some of the presentations he's made and some of the interviews that he gave while he was leading the union. And there was something he said that I wrote down at the time um, that always resonated with me. And that is uh, collective bargaining in the end is only about one thing and that's power. Okay. And, and he went on to say, if you think collective bargaining is about persuasion logic or reason you're wrong it's about leverage 
Okay. And there's a, there's a lot of truth. There's a whole story in those simple sentences, right? It doesn't matter if Marty Walsh comes in and makes the most brilliant arguments to Gary and Bill Daly and the owners about all the subjects of collective bargaining. It doesn't matter how brilliant the presentation is. It doesn't matter how persuasive it is. It doesn't matter if everyone in the room starts crying <laughs> from how brilliant and wonderful it was. Because at the end of the day, the leader of the NHLPA, his words only have meaning if backed up by power and leverage. And what is that? What does that mean? That means unity, education, knowledge, and solidarity. Hmm. Sticking with it. And if you go back to 2004-05, which is the seminal moment of labor relations between the NHL and the NHLPA, and, and we've talked about this before on the show with various guests, there is no doubt that going into the 2004 lockout, Gary Bettman was determined to to get his salary cap that he tried for 10 years previously in 1994, 95, and failed. He failed because the players stuck together right into February of 95. And mm -hmm. when confronted with no salary cap or cancel the season, the owners blinked and told Gary, you're not canceling the season. Go make a deal. And Gary went and made a deal in 95 without a salary cap. And that wow. was the primary issue. That was the primary issue of the, of the lockout, you know, but what is a lockout? A lockout is a war of attrition of who can endure the pain the longest. Mm -hmm. Who can endure the pain the longest? Is it the owners or is it the players? And Gary knows this. So going into 2004, 2005, Gary had the owners all on board and he said, we are going to get a salary cap if we burn a year of NHL hockey because they believed, Gary and the owners and the league believed, if we cancel the season, the players will crack. The same players that had shown remarkable unity, involvement, activity, and solidarity, they would crack. Mm -hmm. Bob Goodnow, 
who's a brilliant labor leader in his own right, who did so much good for NHL players. He knew this. And he went around and talked to all the players before the lockout in 2004. And he said, guys, a lockout is coming. And Gary has got the owners on board to cancel the year. So, Bob, what's the play here? What's your strategy? How do we come out of this attack without a salary cap? And Bob said, there's only one way. And that is, we have to take it to 18 months. And that means the entire 2004-05 season is gone. We're going into the lockout is continuing into the 05-06 season. You want to see the owners crumble? December, January, 05-06, 18 months of no hockey. When the owners are confronted of two with two consecutive canceled seasons, that's when they crack. And I believe Bob was right. And Bob had this conversation with teams, every team in the NHL, before the 0405 lockout. And Bob laid it out. And he told everybody, a year before the lockout, this is going to last 18 months. 18 months. Save your money. Prepare for it. Go sign in Europe. Go do whatever... But there, that is the only way we come out of this with no lockout. There was no movement amongst NHL players at the time saying, hey, Bob, are you crazy? 18 months, forget it. Bob, they took a vote. And it was near unanimous. 650 players at the time in the league, near unanimous backing Bob the PA in their positions before the lockout. And everybody knew, everybody knew, the PA leaders, the players knew. 18 months. I talked to players all the time. I was, I, I had 30, 40 players in the league back then. Everyone knew. It's going 18 months. This is an 18-month deal. It's going 18 months. We're going 18 months. And, and what happened? We get to February, and as expected, Gary cancels the season. The response from the players should have been at that very moment. That's fine. The season is canceled. We'll talk to you again January. We're not talking until January. Right. Right? Right. And instead, when the season got canceled, it was like the island of Lord of the Flies. There was disorganized chaos. And you can take apart that moment in time and what and, and analyze now what the NHL PA could have done differently. You had agents involved communicating with the league. 
and facilitating communication between their players and people on the league side. You had secret meetings going on between players and people on the league side without the NHLPA's knowledge, saying players went and met in the middle of the lockout with people in NHL leadership and said, we'll accept a cap. We'll talk, we'll, we'll deliver a salary cap for you. And of course, those players all end up at NHL management. Uh, it, later on in their, in their, in their professional lives. What Funny a, how that works. Whoa, what a coincidence that is. But you see, that's the kind of stuff that players today need to know. And until they're informed and educated about their history, because their history is the NHLPA's history, until they know about that, right? You, like I said earlier, it's a vacuum. If that, it's a vacuum if you're just looking at the issues of today without knowing and understanding any of that. You know, so I came into this business, I became an agent near the end of the 94-95 lockout, all right? And, 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 and I always had an interest in the sports labor side of the business and, and was talking to players who had, they were euphoric. They had just been locked out with a salary cap, the sword of Damocles, hanging over their heads and they came out of it and they had vanquished Gary Bettman. And there is now a CBA with no cap because they stuck together. And there was a culture that existed that had been created by Bob and the people at the NHLPA from the early nineties to the mid nineties that carried over all the way to 2004, salaries went up, player benefits improved, um, player safety, all the issues that were important. A group licensing program was created from the 1992 strike that financed the growth of the NHLPA and paid for their business operations. You know, so... As the players sit here today, you know, the, it's been a, a long search. It was April, uh, last April, when the players um, voted to create a search committee. We're now in February on the verge of having a new leader um, officially and formally introduced to the players and the public and the media. And I think we're on the precipice of a, a change, we're on the precipice of um, a reinvigoration of energy and excitement and enthusiasm and activity around the PA with the players. But it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to start at the top. Where, where Marty Walsh and the people in his senior leadership must go around 
and and engage with the players directly in small groups. And you talk about resetting the culture, Alan. Um, this is so. This is the second point on our list: resetting the culture. You talked a little bit of it there, but I think an important part of resetting the culture goes beyond what you just mentioned. And I think in this particular case, it has to do with getting the star players involved. So when we talk about point two on what the NHLPA needs to do, resetting the culture, star players, and this would surprise a lot of people, are not necessarily very involved in the PA these days. Yep. So how do you get them in? Uh, and I think it's important too, why does that matter? Why does it matter to get... You know, let's. I'm throwing out a name: a Connor McDavid, a Sidney Crosby, an Ovi, the big names of the sport. When you when you look at the NBPA, uh, you have LeBron James on the executive going into every CBA meeting, sitting across from the owners. You have Kevin Durant. You have Chris Paul. Uh, you have the superstars in the sport walking into the room and looking across the table at Adam Silver and the owners. It's a matter of respect. And the bottom line is the owners on the other side of the negotiating table, if they see players populating fourth lines and seventh defensemen. Um, walking into a CBA meeting and there's no Connor, there's no Marner, there's no Matthews, there's none of the top players on their teams sitting across from them. That speaks volumes to how unified and active and involved the membership really is. And that has been a problem. It wasn't a problem with Bob, with Bob Goodnow, because he had the top players involved. Unfortunately, several of them became traitorous rats, <laughs> right? I, it is what it is. They, that's what they were. Um, when you are looking forward right now, with all due respect to every player in the league, you know, whether you play on the fourth line, whether you're um, an extra forward, whether you're a six or seven defenseman, the leaders amongst the players have to be amongst the best players in the league. Have to be. And, and if those players aren't sitting next to the PA leader, that's speaks volumes. So how do you engage them? Well, you have to let them know that you're here in the league right now making your 10 million, 11 million, 12 million a year. You know why? Because of the heroes who came before you, who fought and had the balls to go on strike in 1992, 10 days before the start of the playoffs, when they were making peanuts and the league was threatening to destroy them in their careers. You know, you have to go even beyond that and look to the players from 1956 
and Ted Lindsay and Doug Harvey and Fernie Flayman and those guys who tried to start a union in 1956 and say, you're standing on their shoulders. You are standing on their shoulders. And your 12 million a year is because of them. And they weren't even, they were not doing it for themselves. If you look at the MLB, MLBPA strike that went on uh, this past off season, and look at the comments from the top players in, in baseball, what were they saying? I'm making 30 million a year. I'm making 35 million a year. We're not doing this. We're not doing this because of, of us. We're doing it for the other guys. We're doing it for the guys that are, aren't even in the league right now that are coming in the future. Player after player after player was saying, we're doing it for the next generation. There has to be, and, and that's culture. The, that's those guys, rep, you know, understanding players in the past sacrificed, many sacrificed their careers. So 15, 20 years later, the top players in the league can make 30 million, right? And, and the players in baseball honored the sacrifice. And the players today need to understand that it's their turn. It's their turn to honor the sacrifice of all the players who come up to now, what they've done to make the players of today have better conditions, have better compensation have um, more programs dedicated to group licensing, have um, uh, control over health and safety today and into retirement, you know, to have some contributions being made to their medical insurance in retirement for to, to have better pensions, to have better pensions, right? For, for players with very short careers, all but of that, all of that, you know, has to be taken into account. And then you say to the top players, are you going to look in the eyes of the players who sacrificed 15, 20, 25 years ago? Are you going to look into their eyes and say, you don't give a shit about what they did? Or are you going to honor their sacrifice by just hopping on a call, doing something proactively in support of the union? That's what it's about. So I want to ask you about that specifically because there's going to be people commenting on this video. And I bet some players would feel the same way too. And they'd say, okay, so the star players, you know, let's say Matthews, Marner, Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, Alexander Ovechkin, Victor Hedman, Steven Samuels, I'm just naming good players. They're going to say, 
Are you really going to tell me that those guys stepping into a room with a bunch of billionaires is going to make any sort of difference? Is there any sort of like, because I think for a lot of people, you know, billionaires have this ability to be able to do whatever they want because they've got so much money. How is it that their star players getting into the same room with the owners? How will that change things? Other than obvious, you know, you mentioned it earlier, obviously, Alan, the the, the unity thing. But beyond that, is there, I, I hate to say it, an intimidation factor, but is there a power to that? Uh, in, in What I would do is I'd say this. Let's get away from the, I, I it, it makes me cringe every time I hear the billionaires versus millionaires comparison. Um, let's get away from that and look at it in a different way. The players are not just the employees. They're not just the labor. They're also the product. Okay. There is no game without the players. There is no game without them. Right. I'd like to see them try, but there is no game without the players. And that's unique to collective bargaining in any other realm and it's it's unique to sports and it 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 makes the difference the fact that the players are also the product and that means they are stakeholders in the game you know gary has used the euphemism and he started it in 2004, 2005, I want this grand partnership with the players. Of course, the players have no say in how the business is being run. Um, they have no real, are, are they really partners? Or is Gary Bettman merely a prison warden? Um, which, you know, I think he's, for most of his 30 years, he's been nothing more than a prison warden. And, um, and, and, and I think that, if you get past all of it, the players, and and trust me, there's lots of people responsible for the fact that the top players in the game today, and I've said it often and I've tweeted it often, uh, this, the, the top players in the game today are making the top salaries, their top salaries are almost identical to what players in the league were making in 2000, in 23 years, top salaries have not actually went down dramatically and have only come back to where they were in 2000 recently, recently, you know, and compare where NHL top salaries were in 2000 with all the other sports and all those sports, the top salaries have quadrupled tripled, quadrupled, and NHL top salaries went down dramatically and have only now recovered to where they were 23 years ago. You know, um, there's lots of people responsible for that. But it's not about conducting a witch hunt to, to identify them and humiliate them. What's done is done, Right. But it's important the players know about it. 
It's important the players understand what happened. And 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 there needs to be a a re-engagement. There needs to be a restoring of trust between the players and the PA. And now, that's what I want to see. Item number three on this on this agenda that we have uh, for uh, what the NHL needs to the NHLPA, excuse me, needs to do under new leadership. Growing the group licensing program. A lot of people don't know what this is, but the NFLPA generates three hundred million dollars from this each year, and it helps fund the NFLPA, which makes it a more robust organization. Now, the NFLPA is not a perfect organization, but they are making a lot of money, which can help. Uh, what is this? What's group licensing for people like me on the outside? I don't know what group licensing is. What are we talking about? So uh, basically all the players in the league sign over their group marketing rights, group licensing rights to their union, to the NHLPA, who can then go out there and make uh, deals involving every player. And the union keeps the revenue from those deals. So the first group licensing deal, once the NHLPA acquired the rights to players' name, images, and likeness, uh, was a trading card deal. So everybody collected hockey cards. Everybody knows about hockey cards, Opeachy, Topps. Uh, you know, I collected them. I have them still I had in 2, the shoebox. We, 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 we all did, right? Um, up until 1994, the players got, I think it was actually $100 for allowing them to take their picture and use it in, uh, in the hockey card. Uh, the NHL collected all of the uh, rights, the rights fee from both Tops and Opeachy. Uh, for that. And it was in 1992, 10 days before the end of the regular season and start of the playoffs, where Bob Goodenow said to the league, the NHLPA and the players want control of their group licensing rights. So the NHL owns the logos. The NHL owns the CH in the front of the jersey, but the players own their names, their likenesses, their photographs, their images, and the players wanted to take those rights collectively and sell them and, and sell them into different deals. So the two main streams of revenue, even today, on the group licensing rights are uh, trading cards and video games. Now, the NFLPA uh, and the other unions like NBA P NBPA and MLBPA have grouped rights together with the different unions, and they've also gone and aggressively sold them into different deals generating revenue for the union. And what do they do? They cut checks every year. They're um, uh, equal 
distributions to every player in the league. And it started off at, you know, $25,000, $30,000 a year and has escalated to, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year where every player in the league once a year gets a check from their union, all right, for several hundred thousand dollars a year, which are the proceeds of the group licensing rights. It goes a long way. So their union pays them. That's amazing. Absolutely. There's um, a separate entity. Um, uh, NFLPA has one player. And uh, and that generates, um, as you said, hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in money that is then equally distributed to the players on an annual basis. Right. And, and I think that those leagues do a much better job, too, of creating superstars and marketing them. Right. And you're seeing the effects of that. True. So, yeah. And, and, and th- that's a good reason why the league, the NHL has been um, uh, always trying to sell and promote the logos versus the creation of superstars. Right. right. It has held the and it has held the NHL back dramatically over the years. But you know, my opinion is, and it's just my opinion, if the NHL isn't going to sell the players properly, the NHLPA has to step into the void. And let them do it. Right. And the reality is those logos mean nothing without the players, right? Absolutely. Like what would the Montreal Canadiens be to you without Ken Dryden? Right? Uh, A team without a goalie. (laughs) Still important, but Ken was your guy, right? It's like Doug Gilmore for me. Doug Gilmore was my, excuse the term, gateway drug into hockey. I loved him. Loved him. And, you know, being a Toronto kid at that age, who didn't? Uh, Matt Sundin and these guys that, you know, the Toronto Maple Leaf logo means something because of those players' names. And obviously uh, we can go on at at, at length about that at another time. The last thing on the menu here, and this is a four-part agenda. So again, re-engaging membership, resetting the culture, making it important to be a part of it. And then again, growing the group licensing program, uh, which obviously goes beyond just cutting checks to players, by the way. We're talking pensions. We're talking hiring other lawyers to, 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 to prep for things like number four, which is perhaps the most important thing, prepping for the next labor negotiation, which is three and a half years away at this time. Um, and it's time to get players prepared now. Right, Alan? Absolutely. Why? I, I mean, um, because it probably takes uh, three to four years to sufficiently prepare the membership in any union to be ready for the next collective bargaining negotiation. And it's not the PA leadership setting the agenda for the players. Really, there needs to be a dialogue going back and forth and a hearing out of the membership of what they want. If the players are sufficiently educated and and knowledgeable and and understand all of the history and the general feeling from the membership is we're okay with the cap and we don't want any changes to it. Well, the PA leadership has to listen to that, right? And if 
the general feeling is after um, that re-engagement, the restoration of trust and building of a culture, and now the rolling up of your of your sleeves and preparing for collective bargaining, you know, what's going to be our position on escrow? What's going to be our position on uh, a luxury tax and revenue sharing? What's going to be our position on, on pensions? What's going to be our position on uh, workers' comp? What's going to be our position on all of these things? And, you know, there has to be uh, a putting together of a prioritized platform of what the players want. And that is not going to happen overnight. And, and that literally needs to start now. It needs to start now. And, and it's my hope, uh, prayer, uh, belief that when Marty Walsh, um, uh, formally takes takes over takes the reins that that that's what he's going to be moving towards very quickly i had somebody tell me once alan that once they figured out that the hrr the hockey related revenues were going to be 50 50 remember 50 percent to the players 50 percent to the owners and if your base understanding of 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 the cap uh, for, for or sorry, of, of how that works is basically, you know, there's the players put money into escrow and if they have to pay the owners back, they do. And right now they're working on a payment plan because they owed the owners something like a billion dollars uh, after what happened over the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, somebody, this person said to me, and this is years ago, they said, well, now that it's 50-50, there's not much more to fight about. There's not much more that like, the players get 50, the owners get 50. It's fair. The, the league's not going to ask for more. The players aren't going to ask for more. So there's probably not a reason to have a lockout. There are those people who believe that out there. What do you say to that? Um, I, I think that um, there's hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue today that are not classified as hockey-related revenue. Um. For example, a lot of people don't know this, but the the league um, makes a payment of $38 million a year into the player's pension fund. And then that $38 million comes 100% off the player's share. So the players fund 100% of their pensions. So there's... So many different aspects of the nuts and bolts to Article 50 of the CBA, which defines what's revenue, what's not revenue, and what comes off the owner's share, what comes off the player's share. There's it's 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 much too complicated a discussion to have here today. Um there's pieces of it. We're going important pieces of it. We're going to discuss here in the future with different guests. Um, but there's a whole lot of of issues out there, you know. From you know, players were paying at one time twenty two percent escrow. Um, 
And and by and, the way, that means like if you look at your and I want to put that in real terms for people listening. I understand these players make millions, but remember, there's taxes, there's agency fees, and there's a whole bunch of other things. And then after all of that, or sorry, not not after all of that, before all of that, they're giving 22% of it back to the owners to make sure the owners are made whole. Correct. So so look at it like that, like this. Um, whatever the face value of the contract is, minus 22%, and now we start paying tax from there. So a $10 million player is losing $2 million bucks off the bat. Correct. Wow. That's a lot of money. It, 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 I mean, and, you know, under the new CBA negotiated during the pandemic, um, escrow is capped this year at 10%, and then for the next three years at 6%. At 6%. Okay? But then the CBA is up. Right. And all that needs to be figured out again. Yeah. Because remember, escrow has, is, is brought down and is flat over four years, 10, 6, 6, and 6. But the cap has been flat for a number of years. And the flat cap has pushed lots of players out of the league. Now, I want to I want to I want to finalize this going through all this again. You know, the 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 line items that we have here, Alan, to use a contract term, engaging membership, resetting the culture, growing the group licensing program, prepping for the next label or uh, negotiation. Those are the four main things that, in your opinion, the NHL needs to the NHLPA, excuse me, needs to do with this leadership change over the next especially three and a half years as we get to what is probably Gary Bettman's last labor negotiation. My question to you is, can it be done? And part two is, is it likely to be done? Um, I, 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 I can't predict the future. Um, and uh, I, I'm somebody who has always had one thing, hope. So I bring a lot of hopefulness uh, to the future and, uh, and a belief in the people like the, the players have driven this process in finding a new executive director. It's been a player driven process, right? Um, and, and now that they've set their sights on who the next leader is, you know, it's going to be incumbent on him to come in and to get to know everybody uh, involved in the sport. He's going to have to engage with the players. He's going to have to engage with the agent community. He's going to have to engage with the league. He's going to have to engage with his own staff. Uh, and there's going to be a learning curve in, in getting comfortable and getting to know everybody. Uh, but I believe uh, they'll hit the ground running. And I'm very hopeful that uh, that he's the right guy for the right time, and uh, and and off we go. Lastly, I want to ask because I am a fan. Is there any benefit to getting the fans involved in terms of getting them on side with what the PA is doing? The PA very rarely has any interaction with the fans themselves. 
Um, is there any point to that? Because it feels like sometimes the PA is an organization that exists, but they don't really have any, you know, we love the players, but the NHLPA, I don't know, does it has no connection to the fans. Would that help a labor negotiation? Um, that's a great question. I think if you ask different people, you're going to get different answers. There's always a general feeling out there. You know, players are making $7 million a year and they're whining and complaining about their salary. And, you know, what about the average Joe? There's lots of people out there who mistakenly believe that that players getting more compensation is connected in any way to ticket prices. So I hear all the time from uh, fans I see on Twitter all the time, you know, it's so expensive already to go to a game, and it is, and I have, I completely respect, you know, how expensive ticket prices are. And it's the player's fault because they want so much money. Well, the truth is, whether you want to accept it or not, here's the truth. You want the truth? I'm going to give you the truth. I'm like Jack Nicholson here saying, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> here, here it is. Here it is. There is zero connection between player salaries and ticket prices. I know I've just blown your mind and you're saying it's not true. It's not true. There are studies. They've done scientific studies. Ticket prices have always been a, a dynamically priced based on supply and demand. In 2004-05, Gary Bettman famously, you know, grabbed this false narrative and said, what we're trying to do by bringing in a salary cap is we're doing this for the fans. We're going to, when we get our cap, we're going to lower ticket prices. Okay. And what happened? The NHL and the fans are, yeah, we're going to get lower ticket prices. Gary's fighting for us. And the CBA got done with a salary cap for the first time. And what happened? Very quietly, ticket prices exploded. Okay. Wow. In an unprecedented way. There is zero connection. It is strictly, strictly supply and demand. Wow. Alan Walsh, always learn something. Um, this is going to be a big week and this is going to be a big first 12 months. It'll be very interesting to see how the PA handles this. And of course, you know, we'll come back to it. We talk about this stuff from time to time on AP. Um, but, but Alan, thank you so much for, for your insights on this one. It will be curious to see how much, if any of these things, the new PA follows. So thanks so much, man. You got it. It's been a pleasure. This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction. Wanna bet? Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN.